This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today, and we want to just talk a little bit about vaccines, COVID-19, a little bit of everything, and that's why we brought in an expert. Once again, we're delighted we've got Dr. John Carlo with us. He's president and CEO of Prism Health North Texas. He also is very active in the Texas Medical Association, and he's on so many committees there, it's just too numerous to mention. But John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. You know, I almost jump right in. We're so excited that now Pfizer is no longer emergency use. But the question, this new medication they're coming out with, or at least the new named medication, is it the same formula? No, that's, a, that's actually a good question and important to, to remind everybody that it is the same vaccine. There's no reason to wait for uh, a new shipment. And I think that it is an important distinction and one we should continue to remind everybody that this now is no longer emergency use. It's fully approved by the FDA. And that's because it's got really, really good safety data now that has shown experience over a significant amount of time, which is above what we were looking at with just the the EUA. And so now we have a, a fully approved vaccine, which really tells us that, that it's exquisitely safe. And, you know, we already knew that because of our experience in the real world, we've already given out over 350 million vaccines in the United States. And the watchdogs that are looking for all of the potential safety risks this is an unprecedented uh, observation and investigation period where we're looking for any and all potential safety issues. And I, I will tell you, looking at those very carefully from all the six data reporting centers, we are dealing with a very, very safe vaccine here. And that's just a really, really good thing. So I think we should celebrate uh, that we have moved from the EUA to full approval, noting that it's because of that really, really good safety uh, profile. You know, I've talked to several parents, John, and of course they want what's best for their children. We certainly understand that. But as you know, Pfizer is available for 12 and over. But if you look at the emergency use removal, I think it's 16 and older. Can you explain one to our listeners why it's still emergency use for 12 to 15 or 16? And what does that mean for parents that wanted to be removed totally before they use that vaccine on their children. Right, and that's, that is isn't a distinction to look at in terms of how the FDA goes through the approval process. And as you remember, the, the Pfizer vaccine was originally approved from ages 16 and up under the emergency use authorization, and then later they extended that down to the uh, age of 12. And so what we're working with here is a, a timeline, and, and it really has to do with the approval process and, and looking through the approval windows. So, you know, the FDA had experience enough to say this is full approval in the age group of 16 and up, um, and they left, you know, with the ages 12 to 15 under the EUA. 
But I think very, very quickly we should expect the, the approval uh, to go into that different age group, the younger age group. It's just simply um, a, a process of time to make sure that we have enough time experience to make that full approval process. But I fully expect that to happen. Um, so at this point, there's really nothing parents need to do any differently. Uh, we're still dealing with the same vaccine. It's just a matter of getting the approval process done based on the amount of time that they've had to look at the vaccine. You know, John, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. and Let's talk booster. You know, booster has come into the vocabulary now of COVID-19. First, what vaccines are eligible currently for a third booster? Yeah, and I think it's important to start with an important distinction uh, that is out there. And I think that it is confusing. So let's sort of break this down together a little bit. There, there currently is a third dose recommendation, which is a little different than how I would look at it as a booster dose. So when you talk about a third dose, what we are working with is in some individuals, and particularly those that have medical conditions that we call being immunocompromised. So this is like organ transplants or being on medications that affects our immune systems or having an uh, immunologic condition. What we're finding is in these individuals, the two doses of the mRNA vaccines just aren't enough to get a good, robust immune response. And so the recommendation now is for those individuals in those, with those medical conditions to go ahead and receive a third dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, and they're recommending it almost at the same time period as if the distance between the first and second dose, in other words, about 28 days. Um, This is a very different distinction from what we're dealing with, I think, next is the booster dose. And what the booster dose is, it's a different idea. It's saying that the the initial two-dose vaccine worked, but over time, the antibodies and the immune system that has really been successful is, is waning over time. In other words, over a certain period of time, that effectiveness of the vaccine is showing to benefit by having a, an additional challenge, which we call the booster dose. Now, as of right now, and I think this is an important timing distinction, we do not have in the United States a recommendation for a a booster dose. That could change almost um, tomorrow because that is really something that the CDC and FDA are looking at very, very carefully. Um, And so what we don't know right now under that idea of a booster dose, what that time frame would be like, and then who would really benefit the most by going ahead and getting the booster dose. I, I think that those that will be recommended will be different, probably a larger group than the, the third dose individuals. Um, and the time frame will hope, we think it'll be about eight months, but it could be earlier than that. But again, right now, as of today, um, we do not have a recommendation for a booster dose, uh, but we have heard from the CDC that that is coming, uh, and that recommendation should be pretty soon in front of us. And, you know, the other point to make on that is other countries such as Israel and, and, and some European countries have already taken this on and do are doing booster doses. And we're going to look at that in that data very, very carefully to really help guide some of that decision making. So uh, I think that's where we're headed. But it's an important distinction to make between that third dose and that booster dose. 
So you guys were just talking about the booster dose and then the second dose triggered a question. And this is a lay person question. So, you know, here we go. Is the second dose that you get the same as the first? Are you getting the first one again? Yes, same dose. The vaccine is exactly the same. So uh, you can interchange them and the booster dose and the third dose are also going to be the same. All right. Thank you very much for that. This is Dr. John Carlo. He is the president and CEO of Prism Health North Texas. When we come back, we're going to have a provocative conversation about how we are choosing to treat each other regarding our own individual decisions of how we are managing COVID-19. And Dr. Carlo is perfect for this conversation. Next on the Human Side of Healthcare. This is the Human Side of Healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. John Carlo, who is president and CEO of Prism Health North Texas. We're going to get to another topic in just a minute, but first we wanted to ask if people who are over 65 might yet be eligible for the third dose of the COVID vaccines. So that is a really hard question, and I think I've been asked that a lot. And what I recommend for those that are thinking about whether they are a candidate for a third dose, not the booster dose, uh, is to is to talk to your physician, your health provider, and really go through that conversation uh, very carefully. At this point, you know the the sort of the ways you want to look at it, I guess, is it does not look to be harmful to have a third dose. The the real question is whether there's a benefit, whether your your body has you know developed its uh, immune response adequately so that that third dose is perhaps not necessary. And that's a judgment call right now. And I I think that we're being very cautious. So I'm hearing that those that are perhaps not in that defined group of being immunocompromised, but having medical conditions uh, that might put you at higher risk are are being considered. Um, And I think, again, that's an individual decision weighing out the risks and benefits. Um, But overall, I would say that there's no harm, at least at this point, that we can find in in getting that third dose. But it's something we'd want to do very carefully uh, and under advice of of, of a clinician. This is a question that I've wanted to ask you, and I was looking forward to talking to you, and I thought there is not a more perfect person, certainly in the state of Texas, possibly even in America, to address this question. And let me just go with this with a bit of a setup, because this plays on your work as a public health official and with your practice, which is Prism Health North Texas, which works with and has worked with people with HIV. And we are now in the, as I have seen, the 40th year of HIV. It came out in 1981. Is that correct? That's right. I remember that period well. And I remember how our culture Uh, polarized people who were homosexual because of the potential of them getting HIV. And I remember the phobias that came up and good Lord, we didn't have social media back then, but if we did, you know, it would, it would have been a rampage. And the folks with HIV were for years ostracized in our society. And I know you remember those years well. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering at a time when Perhaps we should be not polarizing 
We have people in our society who have chosen for various reasons not to get the vaccination. Mm-hmm. And in headlines every day, it's the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. On social mm-hmm. media, it's the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And my question is, should there be some examination or some room around how we label and treat people who have made the decision not to get the vaccination yet? Well, that's a great, difficult question. So what I think we've got to look at, and I'm glad you brought in the context of our experience from, from the HIV and AIDS pandemic and bringing that into today's context with the discourse that we're seeing overall, um, and also the effect on coronavirus to the marginalized communities, uh, communities of color and communities that are have lower lower access to healthcare and disproportionate effects on on this overall should not should never be forgotten and is is part of this experience. You know, I talk about the response to the AIDS ex- epidemic as sort of the reflection of the best, the very best and the very worst of us as human beings that we can um, show, you know, the very best is how we got to a place where we even discovered the fact that what was affecting predominantly gay men in the early 80s turned out to be a virus, turned out to be a new retrovirus, turned out to uh, need a special technology to allow for testing and accurate testing and turned into a uh, advancement of therapy that now renders HIV a completely survivable condition for the most part. Um, and so we should recognize and celebrate that remarkable these remarkable achievements and advancements of technology, as well as the production of enough of these medications to globally impact the epidemic, not unlike what we can celebrate with coronavirus and that these vaccines came out and we got it in such a short amount of time and has done incredible work in saving lives and doing what we do best as human beings. Um, But then there's the other side of this and and the dark days of AIDS is, is very, very important to remind ourselves that I would say, I guess overall, and perhaps we can put this as a element of our evolution and maybe it's just an artifact of who we are as human beings and our fears of infection and infectious diseases oftentimes don't manifest in ways that are productive or um, can be considered as, you know, not threatening other people. And so I, I hope it, we could sort of drill it as to a fear of the unknown and, and you know, perhaps our just own internal inability to really rise above and not disenfranchise and not discriminate and not do all the things that we're seeing today with, with coronavirus, but also we've seen before with HIV and AIDS. And, you know, maybe this is a reflection point where we can do better um, as a, as a population, as a community, and as, as to others as what we're supposed to be doing as human beings, rather than dwelling on fear Uh, and developing that into stigma and developing that into just ineffective and often hurtful measures uh, that really affect too many people and have done so throughout our history. I love that because we're reflecting on the past where we struggled before, and we're basically saying, have we learned anything in the last 45 years? Not about the disease, about us, right? About how we respond to this. Right. That's that's the treat. That that's where we want to see something better. And you know, we're we're at a critical time here. If you really stand up and look at this unfolding along with our 
other recent experiences around these pandemics and emerging infectious diseases, you know, if you think about it, we thought we had these things licked many, you know, several decades ago. Um, you know, public health had done its job essentially in making clean water, sanitation, and modern conveniences really a, removed us from the sort of old world infections, as we call them. Um, but that resulted in this new threat where we have globalization, we have population over overpopulation, we have uh, you know inf- infringement into new uh, environmental areas, resulting in in these emerging infectious disease threats that are a new world, if you will, and they're coming fast and furious now. And I think we're going to have to face some reckoning on this because after coronavirus, we should ask what's next, but. I don't think we want to know what's next just now, be, right now, because I think that what we're learning from our history, recent history, is these things are coming fast and furious, and we've got to do something different if we're really going to sustain our planet safely away from these threats that we're, we're fighting right now. This is awesome because, folks, you are hearing kind of behind the curtain, if you will, some of the very discussion that public health officials are having to have and that has been brought to the surface and brought to light because of the pandemic that we're currently in. So this begs the follow-up question. If our hospitals are full, if our staffs are taxed to the limit, now I see about every day in the news headlines somewhere in America a refrigerated truck is being pulled up to a hospital someplace. There's no question the impact of this. The numbers say that the number of people in the ICUs are mostly vast majority not vaccinated. That being the case, then how do we communicate and not polarize? Yeah, uh, I think that this is where we come down to, at least in our history and the way we do this together is we've got to have strong leadership that can build a community and a vision for where we go from here. We need to have people to stand up and really articulate that effectively. And we've got to have leadership that is ready to take this on. You know, anytime you think about our sort of our mythical, if you will, fighting of a, of a war or a battle, it always comes down to what, what the leaders do and how, they've, how they bring us to that success place, successful place. And I think that this is the time for our leaders to emerge and really set this vision for, for how we're going to get out of this together. But the other part to this is it's beyond the leadership. It's also what I like to sort of describe as the heroes. And heroes of our communities are different from our leaders. And hero and being a hero is what all of us do on a day-to-day basis to help people or to build a better community. And we need, we need leaders and we need heroes. We need them right now. Um, this is a test of our human condition. And uh, we've got to get through this. And I think it's time. Uh, And I hope that that message gets out there so that we can get our leaders and heroes to stand up. You know, the way that you have tackled these questions and what you just said makes me feel so glad that your voice is so strong with the Texas Medical Association and in Austin. And thank you for the work that you are doing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. John Carlo. When we come back, we're going to turn our sights away from COVID, but to something that can have an equally devastating effect and can slip up on you. What in the world would that be? It's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're so delighted that you're with us today. Today, we're going to talk about one of those silent killers, kind of like hypertension. It affects your immune system and it can slip up on you sepsis. And we're so delighted that we've got with us today, Dr. Sunita Koshi-Nesbitt. She's the Hospital Channel Chief Quality Officer at Texas Health Resources. Dr. Nesbitt, welcome. Let's just begin with the first question. What is sepsis? Well, thank you, Steve, and it's an absolute honor to be here. Sepsis is the body's extreme response to an infection, and it can be a life-threatening medical emergency. And sepsis happens when an infection you already have triggers a chain reaction, so to speak, throughout your body. It's really an inflammatory reaction. And without timely treatment, sepsis can lead to tissue damage, organ failure, and even death. Um, It's a concern because at least 1.7 million adults in America develop sepsis. Um, and 270,000 Americans die as a result of sepsis. So although there's been major advances in the treatment of this disease, the bottom line is that a lot of people still get sepsis every year, and many don't survive. And this is the reason that we at THR have continued to focus our time, talents, and energy on improving sepsis care and outcomes for our patients. You know, I know you described sepsis. Can you develop sepsis without having some other ailment or disease that triggers it? Yes. Sepsis does have some risk factors associated with it. Um, That would include chronic and serious illnesses such as diabetes and cancer or if you're immunocompromised. But certainly it's something that can develop um, if you don't have underlying disease. Again, it's, it's an infection that kind of goes out of control in in the human body um, and so can really um, affect anyone. So what are some of the signs or symptoms for our listeners out there that would alert them, hey, I may have a serious issue here. I may have a sepsis issue. Well, you know, according to the CDC and according to what we see in clinical practice, the main signs to look for include a high heart rate, um, low blood pressure, fever, maybe shivering and feeling cold, confusion and disorientation. Um, In the extreme form, you know, shortness of breath, extreme pain or discomfort. Sometimes you kind of feel clammy or sweaty skin. Um, And again, you know, in terms of risk factors, those who are at the highest risk of developing sepsis include the very young and the very old, um, but primarily those with chronic or serious illnesses, such as, as I described, diabetes and cancer, or if you have an impaired immune system. You know, and I guess for our listeners, they have to be careful because, you know, if you have shortness of breath and you're clammy and those kind of things, that could also be other ailments. And I know that you're board certified in cardiology, but you could be having a event related to cardiac. So you've got to be very careful with these symptoms. Absolutely. And those are the type of symptoms that you should never hesitate to reach out to your physician or even um, in distress calling 911. Um, 
the symptoms of clammy and sweaty skin, as an example, absolutely um, could could be secondary to a lot of different things. I think with sepsis in particular, the piece of an underlying infection um, as well as fever uh, makes it more likely to be a septic type of picture. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you need to seek help no matter what with those kind of symptoms. You know, I was thinking in terms of when you, you have some of these symptom, uh, symptoms with sepsis, you mentioned it can occur anytime with anyone, but particularly the young and the elderly. What are some examples of young people and what age are you referring to that are susceptible to sepsis? Right. So when we say young in terms of sepsis, we're talking about infants anywhere from the age of zero to three months old are the most susceptible. And so really it is very focused on the population that is susceptible to having a um, lower immune system, so to speak. So, um, you know, in general, it's not a disease that kind of comes at any one person um, just kind of out of nowhere. There's generally an underlying infection. Um, And with that, if you have a compromised or low immune system, that's where you're more likely to get sepsis. So I just want to also, I want to make sure the listeners are aware that although the CDC calls out infants um, as a population that is at risk for sepsis, um, those within the neonatology and pediatric community are very well aware um, of, of the risk factors associated with it for that um, age group, and it is, in general, very rare. You know, that's excellent advice, and I was just thinking when you, when you said, you know, young infants, let's say an infant's, say, one month old, you've got to be very careful and, and know your infant because I'm assuming those same symptoms – the infant may be struggling a little bit to breathe. They may feel clammy. They may have um, a fever. Those could be symptoms of sepsis, correct? Absolutely. And, uh, and again, I think um, in the specialty of neonatology as well as pediatrics, um, they are very, very quick to identify and educate um, parents um, with newborns who may be more susceptible to that. Again, I think, you know, in general, um, it's rare, but the numbers are high enough that in this country, it's something to really just understand and be aware of. So Dr. Nesbitt, what can people do to prevent sepsis? Yeah, well, you know, prevention is the key to most of our um, diseases. And, um, Although we've come a long way in identifying and treating sepsis, we have a lot um, to be done. As I mentioned before, you know, seeking medical attention immediately if you have signs and symptoms, um, understanding that if you have diabetes or cancer or a weakened immune system that you might be at risk for that. Um, you know, but as prevention measures, keeping up with your physicians and your healthcare providers, um, if you're someone with a chronic illness, you know, um, keeping up with your medications, your doctor's visits, diet, exercise, um, tobacco use, cessation, all of those things are important. And, and it is, there, there's a lot of parallel between that and what we educate in terms of um, cardiac prevention as well. But really, at the end of the day, we use these preventive measures for everything, including sepsis. 
You know, you mentioned, you know, some of the underlying problems, especially if you have a weakened immune system, if you have certain forms of cancer and uh, diabetes. But let me just ask you as a layperson, if I were, for example, out working in the yard and unfortunately cut myself pretty bad and I came in and put some antiseptic on it, et cetera, uh, but over a period of time it got very infected, could that trigger sepsis? Well, I think that um, a skin infection, if untreated and not watched, right? If, if, if you watch a skin infection every day and it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and you begin to have pain in the area, um, you begin to have swelling in the area, that's a localized infection that needs to be treated. Over time, if that is still left untreated and you have not sought medical care or taken medications for it as prescribed, um, that infection can actually seep into the bloodstream, and that's when we worry about sepsis. So, so sepsis, uh, unlike cardiac disease, does not occur um, immediately. It does take time, and I think that um, for the listeners out there, that that is one take-home point. You know, certainly if you have an infection of any of any sort, it could be a respiratory out to um, a skin cut, as you described. Um, just really being mindful and and um, cautiously watching your infection and getting it treated timely by your physician is important because although sepsis takes time to develop, it will develop if if you don't take care of yourself along the way. You know, I know at Texas Health Resources, you've really focused on trying to improve the overall sepsis care. And I know you have a sepsis work group. Can you explain to our listeners, what do you consider the role of the comprehensive sepsis work group? The comprehensive sepsis work group Really, the primary purpose is to serve as the primary forum within Texas Health Resources to really evaluate, implement, and assess a comprehensive system-wide approach for improving care, reducing harm, and decreasing sepsis mortality or death. And so through this group, we've been able to implement standardization of care, um, and that includes entity sepsis coordinators at each hospital who guide the care of our sepsis patients. And so this work group was formed as far back as 2016 and and really was a multidisciplinary team approach um, to really tackle the, the issue around sepsis mortality. And I know you have a sepsis coordinator. What is the role of a sepsis coordinator and how they impact the overall sepsis care at the hospital. Sepsis coordinators were identified to be subject matter experts within each hospital to really drive improvement and and, uh, excellence and quality care for sepsis. And so sepsis coordinators are registered nurses who encourage the use of the sepsis order sets that have been developed at THR and really help guide the clinicians in the care of the sepsis patients. They also perform chart reviews. They gather data. They look for trends every month and uh, help to formulate a plan based on those trends. And it's been very successful. I'm very proud of that team. Dr. Sunita Koshi-Nesbitt from Texas Health Resources. Thank you for that great information on a very important topic. Steve and I are coming back to wrap things up with a little look ahead next on the Human Side of Healthcare. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. You know, Thomas, what a great show, but I got to tell you, as I look a little bit to the future, I've got some concerns. Well, we've just crossed Labor Day, and I know that you've been really good about projecting what happens after these areas where a lot of people get together um, watching college football. (laughs) That's not where they're getting it. It's all the people who are at the college football game. So what else is on your radar besides what we just had with Labor Day? Well, you brought up a good point. Those college football games, if you saw them on TV, not a lot of people wearing masks. You know, Thomas, the State Fair is upon us, and I know everyone loves the State Fair. What a great institution. People enjoy it. Good family fun. But it's going to be a large group, and it's going to be over an extended period of time. People have got to wear masks. We can transmit this Delta variant if not. The other thing, if we're not wearing masks, we could have a flu season unlike what we had last year. So the state fair starts on Friday and runs all the way through October 17th. I didn't even think about that. My goodness, you are absolutely right. Cruising the midway. So why is it, do you think, that people are just so resistant to masks right now? You know, I think part of it is misinformation. You know, originally it said if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. But that's before the Delta variant. After the Delta variant, it changed everything. We now know you should wear masks, even if you're vaccinated, because you're susceptible to the Delta variant. Thomas, I've got a lot of friends who've been fully vaccinated, and guess what? They got the Delta variant. You know, I was out uh, doing some exercising and whatnot over the weekend, and the holiday weekend passed, and I didn't see any masks in the environment that I was in. And I had mine on. And not only did I get some looks, but I just was in contemplation and reflection thinking, you know, in this big world of seven and a half billion people, I'm one person and I'm going to put this thing on and I'm going to exercise through it just because it's my little part to help stamp this thing out. Why is that kind of an attitude so polarizing today? I think a lot of it has to do with people uh, tired of the pandemic. They want things back to normal, but things aren't back to normal. And so they say, we're just not going to wear a mask and we're going to act like things are back to normal. What we could have, if we're not careful, is a twin pandemic. We have COVID-19 in the fall and we have the flu. And if that happens, Thomas, That's going to mean real capacity issues for our hospitals. So the question comes back to, for me, Steve, is what's wrong with taking out a mask and putting it on? And I've got to say, the one thing that I've seen as kind of the new wardrobe statement is the mask adorning the chin. And that does absolutely no good. You might as well not even have it on you. You know, that's a good point. In fact, uh, I remember Dr. Haley even told us, if you're you're not covering your nose, you're not protecting yourself, even if you cover your mouth. So you've got to cover your nose and your mouth. 
You mentioned Dr. Haley. You know, when COVID first came out, you and I had put together a radio show that we were going to talk about the good things that the local hospitals were doing across North Texas in the communities, helping people live healthier lives. And then COVID happened. And early on, we interviewed Dr. Robert Haley from UT Southwestern Medical Center and Parkland Hospital, infectious disease specialist, used to work for the CDC for a dozen or 10 years back in the 70s. And he told us a story about guinea pigs. That story has stuck with me the whole time, and it makes total sense. I totally agree. Innocent guinea pigs that tell us about wearing masks. Guinea pigs are very much like humans, that they're very susceptible to COVID. And so they had like would put two cages right next to each other with a little very light breeze blowing from one cage to the next. And in the first cage, they put some guinea pigs that had COVID and became very sick. And um, when the study was over, their lungs were examined, and they had severe lung pathology. The lungs were really kind of destroyed by this by the virus. And then they put a second cage, you know, uh, next to it with healthy guinea pigs to see if they would become infected by the air coming from that first cage to the second. And sure enough, those second those guinea pigs, the healthy guinea pigs, became infected. Almost all of them became very sick, and uh, most of them died, and and then had severe lung pathology. Then they put basically a surgical mask material on the healthy guinea pigs cage sort of simulating putting a mask on the healthy people. And sure enough, a few of the guinea pigs got sick from the sick ones, but it took much longer for them to get sick, so their immune system had time to kick in and and protect them. And none of them died, and they had very mild illness and very mild pathology in their lungs. And then they did it a third time. This time they put the mask material on the cages of the sick animals, okay, and repeated the experiment, and now the the healthy animals, only like a, a tiny number of them got sick, and they were just mildly sick. The illness, again, was delayed, and there was no lung pathology in those. So what this proves, beyond a doubt, is that a mask is very efficient in protecting those if the, the sick person is masked, it's protected by two ways. One, it makes you get less virus. You're exposed to less virus. And, and because you've got a lower uh, number of viruses, your body is able to handle it. So, you, so it takes longer for those viruses to, to get through your lungs and make you sick. And so your immune system has time to respond. So you're going to have a milder infection. If you are masked or if the sick person around you is masked, you're going to have a... If you even get infected at all, you will get a less severe infection and you will survive it. It's when both are not masked that we have these big spreader events where lots of people get sick and they're very sick for a long time. Uh, Also, if you have have a mask on but it's not covering your nose, you are protecting those around you, but you're not protected because you breathe in through your nose and you infect others through your mouth. You see, so just having it on your mouth, you're doing a nice thing for those around you, but you're not protected. So to me, that is a very uh, dumb position to be wearing a mask with, but not covering your nose. You're, you're leaving yourself as a setup. So now, Steve, let's throw one other comment in here because this is super significant, too. This is Dr. Jeffrey Kahn. He is the chair of 
pediatric infectious diseases. So now we're talking about protecting our kids. And he talked about on a recent segment the effectiveness of the mask. Oh, absolutely. He talked about it and how his associates were protected by wearing a mask. And with a question that a lot of parents are asking still today, especially that school has been in session almost a month now, what does the science say about should kids wear masks at school? The answer to that question is yes. Um, So now we have guidance from the Center for Disease Control. We have guidance from American Academy of Pediatrics. And it's all focused on the emergence of this Delta variant. And um, there are concerns that we're going to, we're, no, we're right, right now into another, at least here in North Texas, we are entering another peak of COVID. And in fact, the projections are that by mid-October, we may actually be in a place that we were back in January, and the, the, that magnitude of numbers. Um, and the, the, we, we know how to stop this virus, and that is wearing a mask. It's a low-tech solution that really works quite well. We've proven it for other viruses. We've proven it with COVID. You know, there's a lot of talk out there about masks not working. Well, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who've been taking care of kids with COVID for the last 15, 16 months, and none of my colleagues in my my division have gotten COVID. Why? Because they're wearing a mask and they're taking precautions. And I fear that we're, we're wasting this opportunity right now to get this virus under control. Thank you, Dr. Jeffrey Kahn, Director of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Children's Health, Chair in Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And by the way, he did his fellowship at the Yale University School of Medicine. Steve? Thank you for joining us today. Some takeaways, please be safe, please wear a mask, consider getting a vaccine, and be back with us next week on the human side of healthcare.